Welcome to season two of No Romance Without Finance. For those of you new to the podcast, this podcast is dedicated to my mother, who suffered greatly due to her lack of financial independence. In every episode, you will receive education, motivation, and inspiration to be a strong, financially independent woman so you can show up in your relationships from a place of power rather than need. We'll teach you how to tap into your strengths and build your empire so you can enjoy the freedom of financial independence and never end up under a man's thumb. So let's get into it and find out why there is no romance without finance. Welcome to No Romance Without Finance. Today, we are amongst royalty. Goli Ameri. Goli is one of the highest serving Iranians in the U.S. government. Currently, Goli is the CEO and co-founder of Start It Up, an online SMB advisory marketplace connecting businesses with one or more live advisors and strengthening the advisory relationship with a broad range of AI and business tools. Prior to her entrepreneurial experience, Goli was a director at U.S. Leasing responsible for market evaluation and planning for a portfolio of over $200 million in assets and high-technology equipment. Goli was a U.S. Assistant Secretary of State responsible for the second-largest bureau of the State Department with responsibilities for the bulk of U.S. public diplomacy. She was also the Undersecretary for Humanitarian Diplomacy at the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. Goli's previous positions include service as a presidentially nominated representative to the 60th session of the United Nations General Assembly and as a public delegate to the 61st session of the United Nations Commissions on Human Rights. Goldie received her BA and MA from Stanford University and has studied at the Sorbonne. She is the recipient of the Ellis Island Medal of Honor presented annually to American citizens whose accomplishments in their field and inspired services to the United States are cause for celebration. In this episode, Goli talks about her immigration story and the mom guilt and the challenges of balancing work and motherhood. She also discusses her journey into politics and her passion for human rights, along with dealing with imposter syndrome as a woman and how to push yourself to succeed in spite of it. Welcome, Goli. This podcast is brought to you by Citizens of Sound. They're the ones who make my podcast sound and look legit and not like I recorded it in my closet. They've held my hand every step of the way and helped me from A to Z. They are amazing. If you're even thinking about doing a podcast, they're the ones to call. Their contact is in my podcast description. Now back to the podcast. Hi, Goli. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you on because you really are someone that I look up to as a mentor, as someone that I would like to emulate in life. And I think that everything that you've done in your life is going to be so inspirational to the people that listen to this podcast. And, you know, most of our listeners, if not all of them are women. And I think women are just going to get so much out of your story and how you were able to get to where you are. So I kind of want to start from the beginning. You were born in Iran, correct? Yes. 
Okay, yes, just like me. So when did you move to the United States? How did that come about? Well, I moved in 1974 to come to the U.S. to go to college. And maybe some of your listeners may not know this, but at the time, Iran actually had the largest number of foreign students in the United States. And, you know, and I was one of those foreign students. And, you know, that's what we did. We came to the U.S. to get the best education and then go back to Iran and do something significant for the people and the country, right? That's amazing. And that's when you were at Stanford? Yes, Yes. Yes. Yeah. That little school, Stanford. <laughs> that is amazing. And then, so your plan was to go back and did you go back to Iran? No, no, actually, but, you know, I was part of that cohort that by the time we were even thinking of returning. And of course, you know, I was in the you know middle of my undergraduate or, you know, at the tail end of it, uh, the revolution happened. So there was really no, no option of going back. Okay, so you come to the United States thinking that you're going to get an education and you got your BA and master's from Stanford, thinking that you're going to go back and then the revolution happens and it throws a complete monkey wrench in your plans. So then what, do you, what did you decide to do then? What, what was plan B? Right, and you know, of course there were, you know, hundreds of thousands of us that were exactly in the same, in the same boat. And, you know, at the time, obviously because of the hostage crisis, you know, the American public, rightly so, was was angry and President Carter was trying to deal with that. And, you know, one of the ways that he felt he could deal with that, instead of unifying people, you know, he basically wanted, you know, all students to return, you know, every Iranian in the country to return. So we were all scrambling to figure out how not to do that because, you know, clearly so many people's, their parents' lives, their own lives were in danger. It was it was kind of a messy situation in in Iran at the time. Not to mention the fact that you know I think my generation was 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 a very driven generation, men and women both. You know we we were meant to make change. We were made to you know do big things at least in our minds. And you know this this opportunity was was taken away. And and then you know of course you know, this great country, the United States of America that welcomes immigrants, you know, ultimately welcomed us. And here we all are. And honestly, sometimes I think to myself, you know, I adore my heritage, I adore my Iranian heritage. But I think when I really think about it, America is such an incredible mindset that I really feel fortunate that I was able to, to stay here and, and to be able to really find myself, you know, and I think that's just the best way of saying that. Right. And so you get out of college and what did you do? What is, what was your first job? How, how did you begin to establish yourself? Right. And actually that, that it in itself, you know, parts of it is at least a funny story. You know, it was very difficult to find a job, obviously in the middle of the hostage crisis, but at the same time, you know, once again, you know, that American spirit of kindness and, and helping out and giving people, you know, second chances and opportunities were, was really at work. But I do remember, you know, coming out and, you know, one of the job interviews I had, I mean, I, we, we were ready and willing to take any job. And this was a job at an insurance company where people were asking me how many words per minute did I type? And, and I'm thinking to myself, Oh my God, this was not supposed to be my destiny. <laughs> I have a master's from Stanford. <laughs> And then, you know, right? this, this older gentleman said to me, people of your kind are hard, hard workers. 
So oh we, my God, we like to give opportunities to that. Anyway, I ended up, I did not get that wow. job, by the way. But <laughs> thank God. But I, but I did get a job at Burroughs Corporation, which was a major computer vendor at the time. And, you know, I had eight interviews there and they were, you know, clearly worried about their clients and how they felt about working with someone of Iranian heritage. But, you know, my goodness, that branch manager of Burroughs who gave me that job, I am grateful to him for the rest of my life. I learned a lot in that job. Wow. Okay. So then how did your, how did your career progress to the point where you started in government? Tell us about the trajectory. Right. And actually, Patty, you know, I think this is a good story for, for women. And maybe I will kind of conclude with that. But, you know, I, I sort of climbed the corporate ladder to, you know, to a, to a certain extent. And then my last job was a, a director at US Leasing. And, you know, I think at that time, I must have had my second child. And then I came down with breast cancer. And this was, you know, kind of at a younger oh, age. No. And so, you know, I was sort of in and out for a year dealing with that. And then I decided to, to kind of work part time. And then I started a small consulting, kind of a boutique consulting firm to do a consulting in the telecom world at the time, which was just being, being de deregulated. And, you know, this sort of gave me an opportunity to, to keep working, but at the same time, you know, be there for my children, which is an issue that pretty much every mother that I know of out there, you know, yes, deals with at absolutely. some point in their career. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and how challenging was that? And was that something that you always thought that you were going to do is, is work as a woman and have children? Or did you think, oh, when I have children, I don't want to work? And how did that come about in your head? Right, and 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 that's and that's a great question. And remember, you know, in in my generation, it wasn't as evident and obvious and acceptable as it is today. You know, today it's like women are not judging each other. You know, some women want to work. A lot of women want to work. Some women necessarily may not want to work. You know, childcare is obviously always always an issue, you know, that it was an issue then, it's an issue now. For me, it was really always important to be connected to the to the working world. But, you know, it's it's challenging, you know, it even, you know, when you start your own thing, you know, you're kind of always feeling like, well, I'm not achieving as much as I want to achieve because my consulting thing was was small. It wasn't like, you know, anything significant, but to make it significant, you really had to invest a lot of time. But then at the same time, you don't want to take time away from your kids. And, and I think this is a decision that a lot of women have faced and are facing and will continue to face. It's normal. It's just in our genes. And, and I think we need to be comfortable with that. It's a challenge. I think we have to accept the fact that it's a challenge and just do our best and be the best moms that we can be while at the same time, you know, if we want keeping our ties to the working world and not judge each other. I think that's really critical, which I honestly don't think is happening as much these days as it was at that time when I was younger. Yes, you're, you're right. It's a, it's a lot more accepted now that, you know, that women are working, but even today I, I see mom guilt so much with my friends, with, with my family, you know, I have a friend who has a very, very successful consulting firm. I mean, she has more business than she knows what to do with, right? And she doesn't get to spend a lot of time with her son. And I mean, I think she's actually very balanced, but as much time, I guess, as she wants to spend with her son. 
So she has mom guilt and in order to make up for it, you know, when he, when he finished kindergarten, she had this like huge graduation for kindergarten for him. I mean, like, you know, with congratulations, graduate on the lawn, you know, you would think this kid graduated from Harvard, you know, I, I kid you not. He graduated from kindergarten, but I, when I was speaking with her about it, I said, how much of this has to do with the fact that you feel guilty because you're not around as much as you'd like? And she said, most of it. Yeah. And we still, as women, carry a lot of that guilt that we need to be. And this child is very, very much loved, very well-rounded. You know, he, he, there's nothing wrong with this child, thank goodness. But, you know, we just feel that. And, you know, and I know that back then in your generation, it was, it was even worse that you had to make that decision. Yeah, exactly. And honestly, the, the older I've gotten, and hopefully a bit wiser, you know, I've just come to the conclusion that, you know, we have to be comfortable with that guilt. There's nothing wrong yes. with that guilt. I think that guilt is a sentiment that that propels us forward, that helps us make decisions. And I think it's part and parcel of the deal. And, you know, by God, I'm not a child expert by any means, but what I'm what I'm seeing in, in my own kids, at least, is that, and you know, I have two boys, I don't have daughters, but I see with my boys that they are proud and comfortable of, of their mom. You know, I think that that sort of means something to them. And, and I think at the same time, you know, it's, it's all about how much love you give to your children and how you're always there for them when they need you. So it's not like you need to hover. And honestly, my generation hovered too much. We helicoptered too much. And I think a lot of us are realizing that. And, you know, maybe part of the hovering helicoptering had to do with the guilt, but that probably is not the best way to do it either. Right. No, absolutely. And the fact that, that your children saw you working and saw you being successful, I am certain that that opened their eyes and their perception on the type of woman that they want to be with, right? And they're more open to being with a woman that is successful, that has her own business. Like, for example, you know, my mother, when she was in Iran, she was very, very successful. Unfortunately, when we came to the US, because of the language barrier, she could no longer work in her field. But when she was in Iran, she was very successful. And I saw that and she instilled that in me and my brother saw that. So now, you know, my, my brother marries a woman who has her own business, super successful, super smart. You know, she, she didn't, she chose to keep her maiden name was never an issue. And it's because he saw role models as women growing up, just like your children did, that didn't really teach him those gender stereotypes. My brother washes dishes. He does the laundry. <laughs> you know, he cooks and cleans just like, yeah, just like everybody else. But it's women like you that set the standard and set the tone, what's appreciated about women and not just the gender, the typical gender norms that men expect. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love this story about your mom. My goodness, you know, at, at that time to be working like that in Iran, that that was a big deal and really kudos, kudos to her. You know, what, one of the things that actually makes me feel a lot better about the status of women is that in essence, we are the ones that sort of raised the millennial generation and the millennials are all having children and they're all, they're getting married, having children. And, you know, I see a whole different situation with the way the millennial couples deal with each other. There's a, there's a lot more 
equality of responsibilities. There's a, you know, it's a team spirit. It's not like, you know, you're pigeonholed in this job and the other one is pigeonholed in the other job. There's a lot of collaboration going on there, which I just think is so, it's so refreshing. Yes, it is. It is the younger generation. There's a lot more collaboration. There's a lot more acceptance of, you know, or I said denial of gender roles, right? And everyone pretty much does everything. And and I think, again, that's a testament to women like you, women like my mother, even my friends that have, have raised their sons in situations or their daughters in situations where, hey, your mother goes to work, you know, and, and your wife is probably going to go to work and everyone's responsible for it all. And I, I think, you know, one, one thing that I've seen is that the younger generation feels like everyone is responsible everyone is really typically responsible for the duties in the home. And, you know, I, and when I see my brother doing that, I think that's so important because a lot of times I remember there, there was once a guy that, that one of our neighbors came in to pick up something and I, my fiance and I, we have a rule when, when he cooks, I clean and vice versa. So I had cooked and he was cleaning and the guy comes over and he sees my fiance washing dishes and he's like, wow, you know, uh, you're so lucky to have a man that helps you. And I was like, helps me. I'm like, I'm sorry. What do you mean by help? He goes, well, yeah, he's cleaning. I said, well, by saying help, you're insinuating that this is a task that's assigned to me (laughs) that he is doing, right? That he's helping me out because this is my job. I was like, you know, this isn't my job. It is both of our jobs to make sure that our living environment is clean, that dishes are done, and he is helping himself. He's not just helping me. And I think the younger generation is starting to really understand that. And I think that's that's something that's really refreshing. All right, Goli, so... I, I want to move to something that I really am very interested in knowing. And you are the highest ranking Iranian to ever hold a government position. And I just like, I, I just want to cry when I say that because like you're a woman and like to be able to do that, I think is so amazing. How did you get into government? How did that come about? Okay. Actually, let me, let, let me back up for a moment. I'm so honored when, when people say that, but there are there are three other individuals, actually one of them, an incredible woman, a friend who was the U.S. ambassador to Sweden, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. And she was really a phenomenal woman, Azita Raji, ambassador Azita Raji. And then there are two gentlemen also of Iranian heritage that have been assistant secretaries in the Bush and the Obama administrations. And then, you know, there's currently another person of Iranian heritage that's an ambassador. So clearly, I think we are finally finding our way within you know the the u.s political system which is incredible so to answer your question maybe because of what happened in iran maybe because of the the revolution maybe because of the fact that when we were growing up in iran it was not advised to be politically involved so you know many of us sort of you know just focused on our daily lives and our you know everything else but not on the political side I was very interested in that. So, you know, I remember at an at an early time, once I'd found a job and, you know, we had a, you know, decent lifestyle, you know, I started getting involved in, in politics, Wh- whether I was living in California, when I lived up in Oregon, I started getting involved in, you know, the, the political party. At, at that time, I was a Republican, so I was getting involved in the Republican committees and, you know, 
doing a lot of different things there. And I was really, really very, very interested in that. And because of some of those activities, there was a conversation about potentially running for Congress in Oregon. And people were interested in talking to me about it because the, the current congressman at the time was of Taiwanese heritage. So they thought, you know, one immigrant running after, you know, running against another would, it's a good story. And, you know, there are possibilities, et cetera, et cetera. So I did. I, I ran for Congress at the time. God knows I learned a lot. And then I've, since then, I've talked to a lot of other members of the community and not members of the Iranian American community about running for Congress, because you learn a lot of lessons when you do that for the first time. And, you know, I won my primary, which was a big deal in the sense that I think it says a lot about the people of Oregon that, you know, they didn't think for a minute about nominating a person of Iranian heritage at the time when, you know, Iran and the U.S. clearly have not had a good relationship in a very long time, but particularly at that time. And I think it really says a lot about the American spirit. So I, I won my Republican primary, but not, not the general election, although it was a race that gained a lot of attention for two reasons. One is because of the whole immigrant factor for both of us, but two, when you raise funds when you're running for office and you raise a good deal of funds, it just gets attention because in many ways, I think it makes you a more credible candidate. And, you know, usually for those people out there who are interested, usually the White House is paying attention to to some races that, that get a lot of traction because that's how you create a farm team, right? You, you know, ah. and that creating that farm team is really, is really important. So when, when I lost the race, the White House was interested in finding out what I was interested in and what I would be interested in doing. And I think they knew that I was very interested in, human rights and freedom. And that's something I've always been interested in because, you know, I keep thinking about what we've gained in this country and people back in so many other countries don't. Anyway, so to make a long story short, I got appointed by the president to be the uh, one of the representatives to the UN Commission on Human Rights and then subsequently to the UN General Assembly and then as the US Assistant Secretary of State for Educational and Cultural Affairs. So that's kind of the, the track. You know, it's all about the opportunities, honestly, that this country offers you. Absolutely. And how long were you doing that? How long were you in government? I think totally it was probably three and a half, four years, but some of it not full time. Like, for example, the UN Commission on Human Rights is only for a few months in Geneva. But, you know, over the span of, I would say, about four years, probably. And, and as a woman and as a female immigrant, did, did you feel like you've, you faced certain challenges that your male counterparts didn't? Actually, let me rephrase that question. I don't think I felt any challenges because of my heritage. And in fact, if anything, it was always an advantage. Great. Explain that, please. Well, because, you know, I think, once again, I, I want to keep repeating this, you know, it's like when the U.S., provides this opportunity and, and you do your job, you know, the way you're supposed to do it, you know, it creates momentum for everyone. The administration is happy. You're, you're happy. It's like, you know, something good is happening out of that. You know, something good is happening when you present opportunities to, to the immigrant communities. But especially when I was in these positions, you know, I think my Iranian heritage, first of all, was very surprising to a lot of people. 
I think it said a lot about the United States, but I think I was also able to, to leverage that, you know, to have better conversations with people. And I think when I was at the State Department as the Assistant Secretary, I traveled a lot. And I think it was very interesting for people to see that and, and to experience that. Like, just to give you a quick example, I had a visit to France. And one of the things the U.S. Embassy wanted to do was we went on a visit to some of the banlieues, the suburbs in Paris that, that have a majority North African population. And you saw what just recently happened with the uprising in France after one of their members was shot by the police. You know, there was kind of another Black Lives Matter movement, you know, in, in France. And I think one of the things that I heard that really has still, you know, just in my heart is they said, I am the first high ranking government official that has ever visited them. Like the French, French government had not done that. It just, you know, so experiences like this are, it makes you acutely aware of how important outreach is, how important unifying diversity is. It just, I still remember that, that, that episode. Yes, yes. And, you know, it's very obvious that you're so passionate about human rights. You have been so vocal about what's been going on in Iran with the women in Iran and the atrocious, atrocious treatment of the women and taking away of, you know, their, their just basic human rights in Iran. And you and I have talked about that. We've been on panels about it. And one thing that I, I, w- I want to ask you is, what do you think about the UN allowing Iran to have a seat at the table at the, at the UN convention? I mean, how does that even work? And how is that even possible? You know, the, the United Nations was set up on, on very solid principles and, and desires and aspirations. And, you know, obviously it was to bring people together and to make sure that the rights of people are protected and, and everything else that the UN does for people. Unfortunately, I think what has happened at the UN is that the UN represents governments more than it represents the people of a nation. And that's sort of the best way that I can summarize it. And there's a lot of politics going on in, you know, at the UN. Like, I remember when I was there and lobbying as, as a member of the US delegation, lobbying countries to vote on the human rights record on Iran, many com- countries declined because of all the trade agreements they have for Iran on you know, every way that they have a tie to Iran that they cannot jeopardize. There is a lot of that going on, unfortunately, when it comes to, and it's not just Iran, many other countries, but, you know, clearly the situation with Iran is so egregious right now that the politics of the UN gets, gets in the way. Yes. And it's so disappointing because I'm like, you are all about human rights. (laughs) You know, that's what it is about. And the human rights of, yeah, you're right. It's not just Iran. There are other countries definitely that that there's atrocities about human rights taking place every single day. And I just feel like the UN does nothing to punish these countries and just welcomes them with open arms. I don't know what the solution is, but I think that if, if they're going to be talking about human rights, and I don't want to get too political on the podcast, but if they're going to be talking about human rights, then if they're going to walk the walk, they need yeah, to talk exactly. the talk. And that's not exactly. what they're doing right now. 
So I want to get into when, when you, you know, transitioned and when you had, when you were working and had your own company and, you know, this podcast is called No Romance Without Finance and you decided to get married and have children. Did you think about financial independence and your financial independence and whether that was important for you as a woman? I think it was important, but I think it was also a kind of a slow growing up and, and learning process. You know, I think I, I yeah, I mean, okay, like I explain. see with millennial women, that is really important for them. And this, you know, one of the reasons why many of them are sort of putting child rearing, putting it off sort of for, for the future. A lot of women are getting married later, having children later. And I think a lot of that has to do with financial independence. I think in my case, I mean, I honestly, I love talking about this because the learning process was gradual. It was important. And that's why I like to say it, because I think hopefully other people will will hear it and, and think that no decision has to be, you know, kind of a was bang decision right there. You know, sometimes it's evolutionary, right? So, you know, clearly when I when when I was married and and you know we were settled, you know, it was really important for me to work. That was, you know, my number one priority. And not to mention the fact that it was necessary. I mean, it was very difficult for us to, you know, have a decent lifestyle without one income. And, you know, for a while, my former husband was trying to figure out how to, you know, set up his own business and he was very entrepreneurial. And so he quit his job to sort of work on some of the logistics of what he was doing. So for a while I was, you know, supporting both of us, which was wonderful. It was a great feeling, but then, you know, as his business grew, obviously our financial situation changed and it was mostly because of, you know, his entrepreneurial spirit, but, you know, the two of us were clearly together and, and working together. So, you know, I think I thought about financial independence at that time. And I think it was kind of always like a kind of a little needle that pricked me every now and then, but at the same time, you know, life was, life was moving on. Kids were being born, expenses were there, you know, so you sort of, you sort of in a way kind of get used to that. And did it bother me? I would say probably bothered me to a certain extent that I was not as financially independent as I wanted to be. But then at the same time, you know, there's another voice in your head that says, well, you're a couple, you're together. You know, why, why do you always mess around in your brain with these thoughts that are unnecessary? You, you know, <laughs> you know how those things go. Yeah. But you were working, you were contributing yes, financially I to was, the relationship, but, you know, right? Obviously the percentage, the comparative percentage was in the other court and, and camp. And I think that needs to be, you know, admired and, and, and celebrated. But I did, I really did think about that. But, you know, ultimately once the kids grew and, you know, I went into government and subsequently I worked with the Red Cross. So, you know, I kind of back, got back into my career thing. So, which was, you know, obviously very fulfilling because, and maybe I'll leave it at that and you can ask me about it. You know, I kind of want to talk a little bit about, you know, I did have a mini midlife crisis in my early forties. So yeah, I think, Let's because talk I think about it's important it. okay. for women to, yeah. to hear that, you sure. know, this was at a time when I had my small consulting firm projects, you know, I was busy. It wasn't like I was making a ton of money and it was difficult because I was raising my kids and all of that. And I remember sitting in a bar with my sister-in-law when I was like 40 or 41 or something like that and saying, gosh, my, I was meant to do more in my life. Like, 
I love the fact that I've raised my kids and they're amazing and I adore them, but it sort of doesn't seem enough. And I didn't know what the next step was. And I think in the middle of this, this whole congressional thing came up and the rest of it is, is history. But honestly, for a couple of, for a couple of years there, I was sort of really banging my head against the wall, trying to figure out what my next step is. And then, you know, with all those feelings comes the fact that you have a little bit of an imposter syndrome. And then you and I have talked about this before, you know, women think that the sun and the moon and the stars all have to align before you take that next step. You know, in many ways in our minds, we're perfectionists. We sort of, we, we analyze risk different, differently. We, we maybe we we, should, we don't feel good as good about ourselves or as confident as we should. I I don't know really what the deal is, but all I know is that what I've learned is that essentially, and maybe even scientifically, the sun and the moon and the stars do not line up ever, and we just have to we just have to accept that and say, I am I may have an imposter syndrome. I am going to take that next step and. The worst that can happen is it doesn't work out. I didn't win my race, but a lot of other great things happened after that. You know, so exactly, yeah. yes, yes, and I, I, I love that that you say that because we women are really afraid of rejection. And I think that's because we've been inculcated not to take risks as children that, you know, men have been told, and I've said this in other podcasts, climb a tree. If you fall, it's okay. You just wipe yourself off, keep going, you know, but we women have been protected, right? No, don't fall. Don't do this. Don't do that. So we're very risk adverse and we're afraid to fail. So unless everything aligns, everything is perfect. We're afraid to take that next step. And that next step is where the magic is at, right? Even if you fail. Exactly. Just like you were saying, yeah, you, you didn't, you know, you didn't win the ultimate race, but so what? So much came out of that. There have been so many failures that I've had where, you know, I didn't get the job, but guess what? Someone saw me and they were like, you would be good for this position. And it was even a better position than the other one I want that I wanted in the beginning, right? But you, yeah, and you and you and I have talked about this is that you went from, you know, you transitioned from tech to government to nonprofit to back to tech, and you just took so many steps and it's not easy. And we do it even though we're afraid, right? I'm sure exactly. it wasn't easy for you. Well, and you know, I, I also want to add this is that, you know, half the time, I'm going to say this again, you kind of have, you feel like you have an imposter syndrome. Like yes. You feel like, yes. oh, well, you know, I'm not as perfect as I need to be. You know, it, it's like, I'm not, you know, you just kind of don't feel like you're, you're real. But I think that is something that we need to be, learn how to, how to control. But to answer your question, I think one of the things I've, finally figured out in my own head is that I've made these changes because, and I'm not sure whether that's the best decision. I think that's up to, you know, women for themselves to figure that out. But, you know, I can't say I get bored, but I, you know, it's like, I like drinking from the fire hose. I think that's one thing I've learned about myself. And I've been in all of these jobs where I literally knew nothing about, and I had to spend a lot of time learning and studying and, you know, getting up to speed and then relying on, on the team, you know, in order to, to make it happen and to make it succeed. So, 
that's one reason. I think the drawback of that, which I would like to highlight for people, is that you know our network is is one of the most important things that we can develop in life, Patty. And I think you and I have talked about this as well. You know, the network around you, the people you know, the people that you can learn from. You know, these all really add a tremendous amount of value to our lives. And I think one of the problems with with moving from one area to another is that essentially your network is not as large in that particular domain as you want it to be. So I think, you know, that's something for women to, to think about. Correct. Correct. But guess what? You're building new networks, exactly, right? Exactly. You're, you're, you're building new networks. So even though, for example, you know, I, I don't practice law anymore. There've been times where I've needed my, my legal network still. So yeah, I don't practice law, but you're building new networks and it's always a benefit. Anytime you grow, anytime you do something new, anytime you do something different, it's always going to be advantageous. And, you know, I have never, ever, Goli June, been qualified for any job anyone's ever given me. Honestly, I have just pretended that I knew what I was doing because that's what the men do. The men aren't qualified either. Trust me. I've just pretended I knew what I was doing. I, pre- I knew that I could figure it out. I had confidence enough in myself to figure it out. And again, I did have imposter syndrome, but I was like, I'm going to do it anyway. I figured it out and, you know, I, I killed the game. So women... Just learn everything that, you know, that Goldie just told you about just doing it anyway, just going and just going for it, not being afraid, and it will lead you to success. Goldie, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure to have you today. You were really an inspiration to all of us, and you've done so much in your life, and we're really honored that you took time to be with us today. Thank you, Patty. Thank you so much for having me. Honestly, this was a great learning experience for me as well, and it's always such a pleasure to speak with you, and I just love how bold you are in terms of, you know, talking about these ideas, which, are, which is important, because if we're not bold, we can't make change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And listeners, thank you so much for listening. As always, please make sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. That is what keeps us going. And until next time, never forget that a man is not a financial plan.